Thanks for joining us today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. To go against the social pressure requires a great deal of courage and curiosity, as well as intellectual humility. I was 27, maybe 28, when a former Air Force Lieutenant General accused me of insubordination. It made an impression. I don't actually remember what my perceived transgression was, but it almost certainly had something to do with my acting on my own instincts and not his instructions. Suffice it to say, even without the military decorations, he way outranked me. And I'm mostly a pretty good doobie and a rule follower, but I'm also a conscience follower. And when the two collide, I know how that goes down. Now, this is a show all about curiosity, research, theory, all the ways curiosity shows up in work and life. Why am I talking about insubordination? Well, according to psychologist and researcher Todd Cashton, in elevating the value of curiosity, intellectual humility, and courage in public discourse, we can teach people how to amplify their voices and help others do the same. His book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively, is a primer for doing just that. But a little backstory before we go there. In 2014, 2015, when I was first making myself a student of curiosity, Todd's 2010 book, Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredients to a Fulfilling Life, was among my very first reads. In 2018, I was delighted to have him join me on the show to talk about his work in distilling five dimensions of curiosity, a framework that resonates with my sense of the multiplicity of curiosity and its dynamic nature. His well-being lab develops such conceptual models and does research exploring a nuanced understanding of human potential, shifting the emphasis, as they say, from feeling good to doing good. And that's where curiosity and insubordination intersect. Cashton says, if we're interested in having a world full of critical thinkers, armed with courage, resilience, and a love of learning and discovery, then we have to recognize and cultivate curiosity. We also have to teach people to question authority and take a stance of what he calls principled insubordination. We have to mess with the status quo, and we need curiosity to do it. I'm thrilled to have Todd Cashton back with me. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. You are really good at these openers. <laughs> well, my guests make it really easy for me. It's great to have you back, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Appreciate it. So before there was the book, there was the well-being lab and your findings that curiosity leads to this kind of multitude of life-fulfilling benefits that actually kind of seem foundational to insubordination. Do you see a through line there? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was three places to go here where we have in the well-being lab. One is that we find that in the workplace, and we study three different countries. So we're studying people in China, we're studying people in Germany, we're studying people in the US. And I think people can just guess that those cultural norms are quite different really among different. the three, yeah. especially China and the US. 
And what you find is that people that tend to be more curious, they're more likely to dissent and articulate views that are counter to social norms that are not productive or healthy to the group. Mm. That's pretty important. Mm -hmm. So they're not just disagreeing for the sake of recklessness. They're not disagreeing just to be the five-year-old kid that's going to stomp on your Lego blocks. Um, they're not disagreeing because they're impulsive. They just feel a need to kind of just blurt out whatever is on their mind. And the other thing that we've discovered, which we haven't really released to the public yet, is we've been working for three years on interventions to get reds and blues to talk to each other, conservatives and liberals. And what we're finding preliminarily is if you can get people to realize that despite social media and despite what the what people think about a particular group if you are if you tend to be liberal that people have this this is this is their long list of of positions that they take on abortion on immigration on universal basic income as if there's a homogenous monolithic entity right. and if you teach people there's actually a great deal of variety and there's actually a great deal of appreciation for people that bring in new ideas just that sharing of stories of people that have challenged those positions because they feel a little bit differently and the response they got influences and motivates other people to be more curious and exploring, huh, do I agree 95% with the positions of my other liberals or my other conservatives? And it makes people more willing to dissent. So this is interesting. This is like a twist on why representation matters that it's important to be able to see role models that are outside what we think of as the norm. Yeah, and, and it's actually a more scientifically grounded and logically grounded argument for diversity. And why is that important? It's because the world could use representation just on genetically inherited traits, race, sex, gender, sexual orientation. But that's not a good argument to convince people that don't agree with that position from the get-go. And so as you're talking about, if you have people that hold different views and it makes people think more broadly and dissent opens the mind, well, now all of a sudden you have a sharper way to persuade people of like, huh, let's test this out. Let's see if it works. Do we get more creative ideas? Do, are people less likely to self-silence and self-censor? Do we find that we're more viable as a group in terms of our competition? Are better ideas being put out there? Is society improving? Pick the metrics, mm -hmm. happiness, GDP, um, lower levels of poverty, whatever it is that you want. And if that's the case, now we have like a really sustainable way for why we're pursuing diversity as opposed to what I would argue is a problematic approach is just telling people you should abide by this new code because we thought differently about society. While it might be true for uh, you know hundreds of years of treating people as marginalized individuals, it's not the best persuasive sell and it's not sustainable by itself. So I remember when we spoke last that you talked about you know, no parent wants to admit that they have a favorite child and you maybe don't want to admit that you have a favorite dimension of curiosity, but you kind of suggested that maybe you did have a couple of favorites and and you sort of lingered around stress tolerance and thrill seeking, which both seem to me to be about either a hunger for or a capacity for discomfort. 
And certainly your blog, Provoked, is also about taking on thought-provoking ideas, looking at commonly accepted practices, and maybe allowing ourselves to push outside the comfort zone with those there. So I'm wondering, how do those dimensions of curiosity play into insubordination? Stress tolerance is probably the most important dimension of the five. And that's the notion of in order to explore the world, you have to be able to withstand the anxiety of confronting the new, the mysterious, the awkward, the cringeworthy, the <laughs> ambiguous, the conflictual. There's anxiety that's going to come. And one of the things that humans love to do is seek certainty and prediction. It's why we have three pound brains. So we want to be able to differentiate between condors are dangerous and <laughs> And penguins and peacocks are not so much. (laughs) much. And so you can have aesthetic beauty for the peacocks and the penguins, and you can have uh, vigilance that happens for the condors. And the same thing happens in the world of the marketplace of ideas, is you want to be able to predict more effectively, is this something that would not be harmful me to consider, to probe, to experience a wonder about? First is what we have now in society is a lot of people have their nerve endings exposed, and they freak the heck out Mm -hmm. just by the mention of a few topics. You mention politics, you mention race, you mention sex, um, you know, you mention the Supreme Court, and all of a sudden people, their brains get hijacked, and all of a sudden they're in a very quick binary phase of, is it thumbs up or thumbs down for whatever you're going to say next? And you're not thinking about, okay, can we sit back and think about this because I don't want to adopt the way I've always thought about this, I'm with somebody. I'm right. talking to somebody. I want to hear what you want to say. That requires the stress tolerance dimension of curiosity. So that explains the value of that willingness and that openness. But take the leap to insubordination. I mean, what, what, what is insubordination? I guess, I mean, how do you define it? Or how do we, how do you think we experience it? Well, let's separate insubordination from what I'm really focusing on, which is principled insubordination. Yeah, yeah. So insubordination, if you go to any, you know, dictionary definition gets to it's someone that refuses to abide by the rules or the authority figures that are in charge of them. Now, that sounds like it's just the military, like your opening example, uh, but really We are surrounded by social hierarchies. Every time you walk into a conversation at a dinner party, there's a little bit of a social attractiveness hierarchy. Who do people glop onto? Who, who, when they speak, do people drop their smartphones and give undivided attention for what they have to say versus other people who are being talked over? Now, this is a gendered situation Mm -hmm. because, because men tend to receive more attention And the loudest person tends to get more attention and the most aggressive person tends to get the most attention. And all of these are horrible proxies for the quality of ideas and storytelling of the people that are speaking. These hierarchies, when you go and you break those hierarchies, those are small acts of insubordination, a social situation, large acts of insubordination when you're in an organization and you're an intern or you're, you're an administrative assistant and you have an idea that's questioning where the CEO or CFO is going, or in your case, 
talking about a lieutenant or a general and saying, you know what? I don't think that's the moral or ethical thing to do. And here's what. That is frowned upon. Principled insubordination. Uh, I, I sort of brought in a few variables from 60 years of research. I mean, the beauty of writing a book is while my name's on the cover, I've got 70 pages of endnotes in the back where, you know, follow the thread lines <laughs> right. to who, who's influenced me. This is what I like about your work is that you do this distillation of a lot of other people's research. I think this is really a valuable thing that you bring to these conversations. So there's, there's three main parts in the numerator of this formula for principle insubordination. The first is the most obvious, and that's deviance, is that some belief that you hold, behavior, action you're going to engage in, or innovation that you want to create is discrepant from what is typical or what is the orthodoxy in your culture right now. What is the orthodoxy? What's conventional thinking? You deviate, you're in the place for principled insubordination. But that's not going to get to the principled part. So the other part of the numerator is about authenticity. If you're doing things and innovating and wondering and asking questions, and it's not because you care about it, it's because you're trying to get social participation points. You're trying to win social approval on Instagram and Twitter, or you're trying to look as if, look the part, use the, the now maligned term virtue signaling in a large setting and saying what you think are all the right things. Well, you're not doing anything that's principled as a rebellion. You're basically just, just a conformist sheep that's just following the lines. You're not thinking for yourself. And part of curiosity is, what is it that you're interested in? What are the holes that you see? Maslow talks about, Abraham Maslow, about the key to living a transcendental life is reducing phoniness to near zero. And I love that approach to thinking about authenticity. We all play a role. We all kind of present ourselves in a certain way to be seen as intelligent or witty or playful or creative. But if you can reduce phoniness to near zero, then you can actually have an intimate, clear conversation and actually meet for where the disagreements lie and where the agreements lie. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by George Mason University professor of psychology, Todd Cashton, whose book, The Art of Insubordination, hopes to elevate the value of curiosity, intellectual humility, and courage in public discourse, and to teach people how to amplify their voices and help others do the same. He offers a formula for understanding that principled insubordination involving dissent and authenticity. Now, there's one other piece for that numerator, and that's what I added, contribution, which is what is the motivation behind your actions? And if it's about contributing to a better life for yourself, a better life for the people you care about, without interfering with the well-being of other people, now you're moving towards contribution. And that could be at the person level, that could be the group that you're a member of, that could be the group that you aspire to be part of, or it could be the society that you care about. Now, here it gets to the kind of the interesting part. There's a denominator. The bigger it is, the less likely you are to engage in principled insubordination. And that's simple as this, social pressure. Mm. None of us are immune. If you spend time with somebody who says, I don't care what people think. 
well, why are they telling you? I don't care what people think because they care what you think. Just by definition of it, we all have to admit that we experience tension in terms of if you follow the herd's thinking, you will not be maligned. You'll experience no recrimination, no disgust, no disdain. We will welcome you in. Now, whether you get a high status position, that's another story. But you won't be rejected and ostracized. To go against the social pressure requires a great deal of courage and curiosity as well as intellectual humility. And so the higher social pressure gets, the harder it is to be uh, divergent, contribute and be authentic. And the more that we can be authentic and contribute and be divergent, the less social pressure has a hold over our sense of self. So maybe that gets at a, a question that I had, which was that you talk about there's there's sort of 10 things that you think this book will teach you. You have a nice list of these. And one of them is cultivate curiosity, courage, and independent critical thinking in youth. And I was struck at the focus on youth. Was that part of your driving thrust on this? I mean, because of this social pressure now takes so many forms and comes at us in so many more ways, kind of the younger people are. Do you feel like youth are more at risk for a failure of curiosity or, or, or social pressure kind of overwhelming their willingness to push against those norms? So the tension that youth are experiencing right now is one is you've never had more mediums at the disposal of someone who does not have a powerful status platform to speak and be heard by potentially hundreds, if not millions of people. Arab Springs comes to mind as the ultimate example of this. It is a beautiful thing. However, it has been warped and manipulated by the incentives in the online world, which is that what wins eyeballs and this is by work by Jay Van Bevel and other people at NYU, New York University, which is the more energized negative emotions that arise in a tweet or a message on Facebook or a message on any social media platform is more likely to get more attention. We are attracted to outrage. We are attracted to extreme disdain. We are attracted to seeing moments when people are shamed and rejected because it's we get a little bit of schadenfreude right. of enjoying the pleasure of, at least it's not me. Oh my God, like, look what's happening to them. I have to tell everyone about this. And it's also a very quick lesson for ourselves of don't speak out anything remotely like this because these outcomes are now possible. And it has a horrific social pressure effect of training people way too early in their lives that it is better to stay quiet if you can't handle the anxiety of confronting disagreements from people on other on other parts of the other parts of the world, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so in your equation, I, somehow the variable of curiosity needs to be added to the math, right? So you know that I like to harvest curiosity practices. What are the ways that you think that people can? come forward with curiosity, push back maybe against some of those biases, you know, be brave in the face, as you put it, of incuriosity. What are, what are some curiosity practices that could kind of help switch the math a little bit and push back against particularly some of that social pressure maybe? Yeah. So I would, I would um, 
definitely say that I don't think it belongs in the formula, but it, it, it comes under every one of the variables. So think mm. of the deviant. The deviance is the big variable in the numerator of, of insubordination. It's the multiplier. So you have to, there's curiosity built in there, which is the questions. Why do these rules exist? Why do these social norms exist and how I'm supposed to behave? So do I fist bump? Do I shake hands? Can I still hug in the land of COVID? These are questions to ask in terms of what's, is this, what's the trade-off? Is the cost of possible exposure to someone, even though I know someone was vaccinated and has a booster, is the cost of possibly being infected, very low probability rate, will I let that override the fact of this oxytocin, trust-enhancing, intimacy-enhancing hug that I really feel compelled to give to someone that I love and care about who I haven't seen for a long period of time? There's no clear answer. There's lots of uncertainty. And we all have different risk thresholds. But this is where curiosity comes into play. They're trade-offs. What are you willing to risk to do the things that you care about? What probabilities are at the level where you should be avoiding as opposed to approaching? And then you can dig in further with curiosity. Who made the rules? Who made the social norms? How flexible are they? What, what would happen to me if I disagree with these norms? Can I handle those, those costs if I disagree with those norms? Can the cost that I experience in the short term by being divergent and deviating from norms, can I handle that? Because I know in the long term, I'll be respected and I'll actually gain, I'll actually gain traction in trying to improve my life and improve the world that I want to. Every civil rights activist has asked these questions, but it might've been implicit. It might've been automatic. It might've been very quick. What I'm suggesting is that we actually bring this unconscious questioning and curiosity into the conscious level of actually thinking about this, about what the rules are, who made them, why should I follow them, what costs am I willing to, am I willing to absorb to do what I think is ethical, to do what I think is worthy, to do what I think is healthy. Nice. Nice. Well, before I let you go, I want to tap into your unconscious associations of things and do my big jar of wannabe analogies. You ready for this? I love this. The last time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, my big jar, I've got slips of paper with words on them. Uh, we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. And I've got one for you, one for me, one for the audience. Yours is helicopter. Mine is Bicycle pump, and I have one for the audience. You want to go first, or you want me to go? Did you say a helicopter? Yeah, helicopter. Sure. Oh, that's that's like a, a beauty. So one of the things about a helicopter is you there you can't launch from just anywhere. So you have to have, you have to have your launching spot. Now, if you watch the movies, it ends up being like this really rich, wealthy aristocrat from Dubai <laughs> or Kuwait, and they have the the helicopter port on the top of this beautiful, you know, gaudy-like kind of odd configuration of a building. So that heliport where we, where we launch from, that is the secure base. That is the place that you can to start from and you can return to, where if you are worried about whether you're going to fly, if you're worried about the storms you're going to face, if you're worried about the unknown of the elements and the peoples for wherever you're going to go, there are characters at that heliport to make sure 
you have enough gas in the helicopter, that the blades are going to work, that the engine's going to work. Choose those characters wisely because your life, your survival is in their hands. And once they do their thing and making sure that you are mentally safe and physically safe and they give you the green light or they have those sticks to say you're ready to launch, go explore and don't worry about those characters and have them on your shoulders as you know you have a secure base that you can return to. So explore, experience anxiety, um, differentiate your sense of self by doing things that are uncommon and uncanny for how people view you. And that because you know you can always come back to heliport and those same people will welcome you back, the same ones that care about your physical welfare and your mental welfare. Wow. I watch a lot of helicopters from my windows here, and I have some appreciation for exactly what you're talking about. Uh, very nice. So I have bicycle pump. And, you know, a bicycle pump is a very specific thing with a very specific task, except we use our bicycle pump for all sorts of things. You know, I also use it to inflate the air mattress when company is coming, and I use it on my inflatable kayak. And I think curiosity is the same thing that often we think of it as having a very specific kind of inflating, filling quality. But like a bicycle pump, we can use it in places that we might not immediately think of. And that, you know, it's one of the tools that I always have in my storage unit. And I think curiosity is something we always ought to have in our storage unit. So I'd say that's how curiosity is like a bicycle pump. And audience, yours is space heater. How is curiosity like a space heater? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Todd, thank you so much for this. Congratulations again on the book. Thank you. I think it gave the audience the hardest one of the three. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us today and for being part of the independent and non-commercial radio community. Many thanks to my guest, Todd Cashton. Links to his research and book on my website, choosetobecurious.com. Where, by the way, you can find all my previous episodes, recommended reading, photo galleries, lots of other goodies. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media, choose to be curious. And I hope you'll send us your space heater analogy, hashtag analogy. Don't let Todd scare you off. Thanks to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Hash Out by Sunday at Slim's via Blue Dot Sessions. Here's something Todd said that I know I'll be thinking about today. What am I willing to risk to enjoy the things I really care about? What got you thinking? I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Let me say this. The title scares people. The Art of Insubordination. This is actually not a book about rebellions. This is not a book about dissenting. This is about what does it take to get closer to an aspirational view of a utopian society. It's about asking those questions. How do we want society to be? And not be mired in, we've, we've made great strides, we're continuing to make good strides, so we'll just kind of let it continue its course. Can we supercharge the speed of cultural evolution? And this book is 60 years of science and practical, practical strategies of exactly how to do that.